Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and welcome to episode 801 with Nathan Furr. Nathan has some really cool perspective about uncertainty or risk and how to really enjoy it and find it thrilling and exciting and a world full of possibilities. So this could be a game-changing reframe. So you'll learn, one, how to turn the fear of the unknown into an excitement for possibilities. Two, the six types of risk and how to manage them. And three, how to deal with the frustrations of failure. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP801. Now here's Nathan's story. Nathan Furr is a professor of strategy and innovation at INSEAD in Paris and an expert in the fields of innovation and technology strategy. His best-selling books include The Innovator's Method and Innovation Capital, published regularly in Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, Forbes and Inc. He's an InnoSight Fellow, has been nominated for the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award, and works with leading companies including Google, Microsoft City, ING, and Philips. Big thanks to Nathan for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Nathan. Nathan, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to chat about your book, The Upside of Uncertainty, A Guide to Finding Possibility in the Unknown. But first, I was a bit intrigued about you've got a master's in later British literature. You've written some novels and some screenplays, and you're a professor of innovation and technology strategy. That's a fun combo, and I'm just curious how your love of literature fuels insights into uncertainty and innovation. Interesting. I, well, first off, I think it's a great example that of uncertainty itself, that life is full of curveballs because there's other things in there. I worked in uh, strategy consulting. I went and did a PhD at Stanford in strategy and entrepreneurship, so very different than literature. But I think really... What is literature about? It's really about big ideas that teach us how to live. And so maybe in a way, you know, nobody's asked me that question before. Not many people know that part of my history. But really, I think what you've put your finger on is my interest in big questions. And for me, uncertainty is like the biggest question of all, because in the field that I'm currently in, or I've been in for more than two decades, we talk about management. Where did management come from? What problem was it built to solve? It was really something we created during the Industrial Revolution when the landscape shifted from this 
ecosystem of tiny firms for craftspeople doing their work to this landscape of giant firms, textiles and automobiles and oil and steel. And suddenly you needed somebody to coordinate and organize all that. And so management really has been so focused on this question of how do we coordinate, organize and control and optimize. It really hasn't spent very much time on this other equally important question, which is, well, what about when the world changes? What about when we need to create? What about when something disrupts and and that what are the tools for a world of uncertainty? And so that's really the question I've been obsessed with in my management and academic career has been, what are the theories, tools, and frameworks for a world of uncertainty? Intriguing. Well, well, I'd love to dig into a few of those in particular. Uh, Thinking about the book, uh, The Upside of Uncertainty, what's behind the title there? There's some upside we should be enjoying? Yeah. I mean, listen, we're all wired to be afraid of uncertainty. So for example, my uh, co-authors who are neuroscientists will point you to the studies that show how our brains light up in the face of uncertainty. So that's an evolutionary wiring we can't help. But as I mentioned, I've been studying these kinds of questions for a while. And in particular, I've gotten to interview innovators. So over the last 20 plus years, some of the biggest names that you've heard of and some of the most interesting people who you haven't heard of. But what I noticed in interviewing those innovators is that to do anything new, they all had to go through uncertainty first. And I was so curious about that because I wouldn't say that I'm like naturally good at that, that that's, you know, where I'm oriented. So I wanted to learn from them. So wait, how did you get the courage to do that? How did you get the courage to leave your job? How did you go through the obstacles when it looked like everything was going to fall apart? So really the genesis of this book was, was that question. I've been interviewing people for about 10 years on this topic about, well, so how did you learn to face uncertainty and what do you do and how do you navigate it and how do you manage it and what happens when something goes wrong? And so really what we did is compiled those interviews and the existing research to come up with some practical things that can help. Okay. Well, I'm excited to dig into some of this how, but first I'd love to touch upon a why. What's really at stake for professionals looking to be awesome at their job if they maintain their current level of skill and discomfort with uncertainty versus gain as much mastery as as we humans with our, our brain hardware and biochemistry can do? Yeah, that's a great question because here's the dilemma. Whether you try to avoid uncertainty or not, it's going to happen to you. So by many, many measures, it appears that the world is becoming more dynamic and more uncertain. So a very rough proxy, the World Uncertainty Index put together by some economists at Stanford and the IMF shows steady increase in uncertainty over the last several decades. And there are many other measures of this that point to greater dynamism and greater change. And I think it's best summarized by the former CEO of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, Justin Solheim. He basically said, the world is ambiguity and paradox. It's everywhere. The world is getting harder and harder for people who like the linear route forward in any field. And what I think he's putting his finger on is what I was feeling, which is maybe you had better parents in schools than I did, but I certainly wasn't taught. How do I deal with uncertainty? And here's the thing. When we have low skills, we tend to fall into these maladaptive behaviors, which are also, by the way, well-documented in the literature, like threat rigidity and rumination and so forth. So if we have tools then we can approach it with greater calm, greater courage and resolve. So 
But I'd say the stake is even bigger than that. Because the thing I learned in going through this, I was so obsessed with uncertainty. But what really became clear to me is that, again, like those innovators I told you about, they only got to new and different things, to the possibilities by going through the uncertainty. And so uncertainty and possibility are really two sides of the same coin. And so if we spend our lives avoiding uncertainty or dealing with it poorly, what we're really doing is shortchanging ourselves on possibility. And now some of you might be saying, oh, that's real nice, Nathan, but I just lived through the pandemic and that stunk and I didn't choose that. Well, you're right. So I want to separate. There's planned uncertainty. When you say, go start a new job or make a geographic move, there's also unplanned uncertainty that happens to you. But my thesis, my proposal would be that as if we have better tools, even that unplanned uncertainty, we can make more out of it. We can suffer less in the situation and we can discover or at least unpack the possibilities that might still be there. Acknowledging, of course, there's downside to me. I want to acknowledge that, but we tend to get focused on that, not on the upside. Okay. Well, now, before we delve into those skill builders, we're saying the word uncertainty a lot, and I have a, a view of what that might mean, and it's, it's broad and inclusive of much. What is your definition and some places where you think the everyday professional sees a lot of uncertainty? Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of definitions out there. So most folks probably have heard of VUCA, which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. So if you'll allow me a nerdy moment, complexity is where you have many nodes and many connections between those nodes. And so the complexity is because if you change one variable, you don't know how it's going to affect other variables. And risk is more, there was an economist in the 20th century, very important economist, Frank Knight, who described risk as when you know the variables and you know the probability distribution, you just don't know the outcome. So think about like rolling dice. Mm -hmm. But uncertainty is where you maybe don't know the variables, you don't know the probability distribution for sure. And if you want to get in even a little bit higher stakes uncertainty, what we might call ambiguity, it's where you don't even maybe have the mental model to make sense of it. And so here's the thing about uncertainty and ambiguity is it requires different tools. Frank Knight, the economist, is very clear about that. But it happens to us a lot more than we realize. So think about like people talk about disruption all the time, disruptive technologies. Well, that is not risk, friends. That is total uncertainty. There are so many things we don't understand about that, so many variables we don't know, so much lack of information, even mental models, how to think about it. We don't know what's coming down the pipe in terms of recession or rebound or what's next. All of those things are uncertain. And so the challenge, I think, is that we're wired almost because it's frightening to us and we haven't been given the tools to kind of avoid the uncertainty. But I kind of feel like if you tried to make your life as certain as possible, what you would certainly discover is how boring it is. And in fact, one of my favorite interviews was with the head of a big gambling organization. And he, called, he said, what we do is we call it among ourselves reverse insurance because it's for people whose lives have gotten so predictable and they want to actually introduce some uncertainty back into their lives. But so for me, uncertainty is really a lack of information or think of it like fog on the landscape. You can't see what's ahead. So what do you do? Do you stay safe and wait? And what I would encourage people to think about I think about it for myself. Think about the things you're proud of that you've done in your life. The things, it could be a career move you made. It could be 
a relationship. It could be that you went away to school when nobody else was doing that. Whatever it is, think of what you're proud of and look back. And I am sure there was a great deal of uncertainty in that journey to that possibility. So for me, it's just, if those are the things we're proud of and they took uncertainty, we had to go through the uncertainty, then I want to get better at it so I can get more of those things. All right. I'm sold. So Nathan, tell us, (laughs) how do we get better at it? Oh man. So that's a big question because we interviewed so many fun people and we interviewed entrepreneurs and scientists, you know, people who won the Nobel prize and But also many professions have a lot of uncertainty in them, like say, for example, paramedics and so forth. But to be fair, we came up with 30 plus tools. Now that's a lot to remember. So what we decided to do was to organize these tools, kind of group them roughly around a metaphor of a first aid cross, but a first aid cross for uncertainty. So you you can get help. And first aid cross has four arms or four categories of things to remember. Number one, to reframe the uncertainty as something that is going to cause you from something that's going to cause you a loss to looking at the possibility instead. Number two, there's ways you can prime, like think how you prime a wall so that the paint sticks or you prime a pump so the water comes out. There's things you can do to prime or prepare so that when uncertainty happens, you're calmer and you're more ready for it. Number three, there's ways to do or take action. The number one thing to resolve uncertainty is to take action. But we learn from a robust body of literature and innovation entrepreneurship, there's ways to take action that are better than others in circumstances of the unknown. And then lastly, the fourth category is to sustain this idea that we will face setbacks. There will be anxiety that's part of uncertainty. So how do we sustain ourselves through that so we can get to the possibility? Okay. Well, then let's let's hear some tools like maybe let's perhaps drop into a scenario that uh, professionals might might find themselves faced with like you know hey do i take on a new job hmm. do i take on a new project a role or responsibility so in the midst of that there's some uncertainty there's some discomfort how do we say use some reframing tools to to get better Yeah. So reframing really sounds simple. It it really is this idea that the way we describe something changes how we think, decide, and act. Now, it sounds kind of fluffy, but there's actually a very robust body of research in psychology and behavioral economics that shows that we have different reactions. So there's a very famous study by Kahneman and Tversky, won the Nobel Prize, which showed that in the experiment, there was a disease and they offered people two treatments. And I'm simplifying it, but it basically was one treatment has a 5% chance of failure and the other treatment has a 95% chance of success. And what do you find? People vastly prefer the 95% chance of success, even though they're statistically identical. Why? Well, because we are wired to be loss averse and gain seeking. So we're afraid of losses. And that's a real problem with uncertainty because for most of us, uncertainty feels like, ooh, I might lose something. And so if we can reframe it in terms of the possibility, then it's much easier to take action in the face of the unknown. So you ask, facing a new job. I faced this myself. I was at a university in the US and I was on track for what we call tenure, which is the job for life. So you heard professors 
publish or perish. This is the moment where you perish or you've published enough and you survive. So I was, I was going to make it. We were living in the U.S. We were comfortable and everything was good. And then we got invited to do this visiting professor thing in France and we just fell in love with it. Anyway, over a course of years, eventually the university I met made me an offer, but it was a hard offer to take because I had kids in high school. I was making a good living. Everything was stable and safe. We had, you know, in-laws up the street, five houses. I was going to get tenure for sure versus going to France where, oh my gosh, the standard was like about double my current university. So it wasn't, I might perish. I was going to actually make less money. My kids were going to have to go to a different culture, different language, pull, you know, one of them out of high school actually. So there was a lot of uncertainties there. And, And I found that when I compared the knowns of my current situation, all the good things of my current situation to the unknowns of this other situation, this big move, it was very scary. But that was totally unfair, right? Because I was comparing my gains to my potential losses when instead I compared my gains to my gains. So yes, I have these good things here at home now, but what about what could happen? What could be the gains of taking the risk of this new situation? And when I did that, it became much clearer. In fact, the greatest moment of clarity is when I shared it with my grandmother, who said to me very simply, she said, Nathan, parents teach their children to live their dreams by living their own dreams. And for me, that like really clicked. Now, if none of that resonates for you, I I guess I'll just share with you one of the interviews we did with Jeff Bezos way back in the era when he was not one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And uh, he was kind of reflecting on Amazon.com, which was a modest success at that time. It wasn't what it was now. But he was reflecting on how he made the decision back in the 1990s, a time when the internet was wild west. We would never put our credit cards in on an online site back in 1995. And he was had this idea for selling books online. and But it was just it was such a crazy and different thing. People were like, oh, that, that seems really scary. And, and at the time, Bezos was working uh, on Wall Street at D.E. Shaw, like one of the best, most prestigious jobs you could have. If he left the job, he was going to leave his bonus on the table. And he went to his boss and told his boss about the idea. And, and after like a two-hour discussion walking around Central Park, the boss said, Jeff, this could be a good idea, but it's probably a better idea for somebody who doesn't already have a really good job. So why don't you think about it? And what Jeff Bezos told us at the end of that is that he thought for a little while, and then the framework he came up with was, he called it a regret minimization framework, which was, I want to project myself out to age 80 and look back on my life and ask, what will I regret? And he said, I wouldn't regret trying this thing, uh, participating in this thing called the internet and failing. But the one thing I would regret is never having tried. And so I think that's another lens. So in summary, what I've said is two tools here is one is to compare the gains to the gains or the opportunities to the opportunities. We tend to compare the uncertainties of the new thing to the known of the existing thing. And then number two, to ask ourselves about regret. What will we regret when we're age 80? And, you know, to be totally fair, there are times in our life when we would regret trying and failing. And then that's a good answer. That's just as legitimate as an answer. Okay, cool. And that provides a fresh perspective when you zoom out at that level. And it's really handy. And, and I like what you said right there at the end is there could be times where he's like, oh yes, I, I do regret 
uh, removing my children from, I don't know, their, their best friends, an excellent environment, family, whatever. Like that could, when considering a move into a totally new continent, that could be something that pops up when you take that lens. Or it could be just the opposite. I regret not exposing my children to this really cool, new, different culture and way of life and perspective and language that can broaden their horizons and views in so many healthy ways. You could fairly come out on either side of that question, and they're both valid. Yeah, Pete, and I want to be clear. It was hard. Like, we got to France. The kids at school were total bullies. I mean, it was awful. We had to move the kids. Like, there were all kinds of hard things, but we are so grateful we did it. Why? Because part of it was we saw the education here isn't just what they learn in math class. The education is what you learn from doing something different and persisting. And the biggest education, which, well, now it's been long enough, the biggest education point was Go live your dreams. And now when I say it's been long enough, the kids are starting to come back and show that they can be bold and that they do want to live their dreams. And and so for me, if they walk away with that experience, then maybe I've given them the best lesson I can. Beautiful. Well, let's talk about the prime set of tools now. Yeah, and especially with the keeping in mind people who want to be awesome at their job, maybe I could tell another I didn't mean to tell a lot of personal stories here, but uh, maybe I could tell another personal story, which was when I was doing my PhD at Stanford, remember I'd worked before. And so I felt a little bit uncomfortable sometimes not working for several years to go do a PhD. Anyway, I was in Silicon Valley and in Silicon Valley, the heroes are not us nerdy professors. They are the entrepreneurs who create things. So I started to feel kind of bad about myself. Like, wow, I must if I had any courage, I would go become an entrepreneur. I would quit the program and just jump out and do something. And and finally, it was just boiling over. And I remember reaching out to one of my mentors there, Professor Tina Seeley. Oh, she's been on the show. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, Tina's amazing. Yeah. I love <laughs> Tina. Okay, so <laughs> Tina, yeah, you can look her up. She's a really lovely person. So we went to lunch together and I confessed to Tina, like, Tina, if I had any courage, I would quit this program and go be an entrepreneur. But I'm just not a risk taker. And Tina said to me, what do you mean you're not a risk taker? I said, yeah, I just, I don't have the courage to just jump off the cliff. And she said, do you really think there's only one kind of risk? And I was like, well, what do you mean, Tina? She said, in my mind, there's financial risk, there's intellectual risk, there's social risk, there's emotional risk. We could go on and on. You seem like somebody who is comfortable taking an intellectual risk. Let's say, talk about something like uncertainty. <laughs> and, but you have four kids that time my wife and co-author was starting a clothing line, so it wasn't generating any money. We we're just living off of student loans, basically. It's like, you have four kids, you're living off of student loans, so you don't want to take a financial risk. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And what she was trying to teach me is that we can actually do a little bit of self-reflection to ask, what are the risks we're comfortable with and we have an aversion with? And where you have an affinity, you want to play to your strengths. And where you have an aversion, you just want to be aware, right? So for me, being a professor actually made an immense amount of sense because I could kind of pad down that financial risk, but I could take intellectual and social risks. And so again, number one lesson, where do you have an affinity? Where do you have an aversion? But the second lesson I learned from another mentor at Stanford, Professor Bob Sutton, and what he taught me was... Be careful that you don't let your risk aversions hold you back from the things you most want. And the story was at the time, again, super things are super tight. We're packing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches from home just to save a couple bucks on lunch. And I'm in class with him and a bunch of other PhD students. And he just 
tells us, oh yeah, when I was a PhD student, I borrowed the equivalent of $30,000 to get my, my research done. And I'm like, the top of my head blew off. Like what? I'm packing this peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You, you like dropped 30 grand? Like what? And the, why would you do that? And he just said, it was simple. I knew that the most important thing for me getting a good job and keeping it in that context was quality of my research. So why not put some money towards it? And it, I was one of those moments where I had this aha of like, oh, so you can, if you just let your, your aversions be aversions, it will, it can hold you back from the things you most care about. And the good news is you can actually build up your risk tolerances by taking smaller risks, little small risks, and that will get you more comfortable so you can take bigger and bigger risks. And so I, I've done that around financial risk aversion. Another way to think about it, one of my favorite interviews was with a guy, uh, David Heinmeier Hansen. He's like the guy behind Ruby on Rails and Basecamp, and he's a startup legend. He is very clear. He hates financial risk. So how do you hate financial risk and be an eight-time serial entrepreneur? Well, he always has something on the side that's paying the bills. First, it was consulting gig, and then later, when he had some software that was selling, it was that. But he always has something to pay the bills on the side, and then he can do a project and not feel so stressed about the financial risk he's taken. So I would say it can do a lot of good for an individual. And by the way, I sometimes coach organizations through this as well, because their risk affinities and aversions hold them back as well. But know your risk, map them out, ask, where am I strong? Where am I weak? Where is maybe an aversion holding me back? And how could I build up some comfort with that so I can act well when that moment comes where I have to face some uncertainty? And where are my strengths and how do I play to those? And it's a very practical thing. Like maybe you're somebody who is thinks up a lot of ideas and you just don't speak up about it in say a meeting or somewhere. This might be a moment of reflection to say, hey, Maybe I should step out there a little bit and speak up about those things or whatever it may be. So anyway, that would be one of the ideas we drew from the book is to know your risks. That's great. And I'm thinking now, so Tina highlighted a number of categories of, of risk there, financial, intellectual, relational. Can you maybe name a few more to prime the pump of ideas for listeners? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, and let me give a little brief explanation. So obviously... There are many kinds, and so I would encourage you to do what makes sense to you. But the ones we use are intellectual, so your willingness to kind of come up with new ideas. Obviously, financial is your willingness to take a financial risk. A social risk is, say, in with acquaintances, say you go to a party or a networking event, your willingness to go out and speak to people or, say, stand up in front of a crowd and talk. Emotional risk would be for your more intimate relationships, so that may be like being willing to say the thing that needs to be said. Physical risk. So maybe like it's getting out, doing action sports. I mean, one of my executive students said I hated physical risk. But then when I was entering the executive ranks, my job was shifting from tamping down risk and uncertainty to actually having to take some uncertainty and risk. And so I knew I needed to get better at it, but I didn't know how. But I knew I really was scared of physical risk. So I said, I'm going to take a kickboxing class which is a super physical confrontational sport. So he takes a kickboxing course and, and it, it, we said it was fun, it was energizing, and it made me more comfortable taking other kinds of risks. So that would be physical. And then I would maybe just may add like political, which is your willingness to 
stand up for change, speak up for change, whether that be in an organizational setting or say in citizenship setting. So it's financial, intellectual, social, emotional, physical, and political. You could, of course, substitute something else. Yeah, but it's up to you. Yes, well, well, consultants uh, love their categorization (laughs) systems and and arguing over them. (laughs) So I'll just just roll with yours. (laughs) So do academics. Turns out so do academics. So yeah, I'm used to having those arguments. And so let's talk about some of the tools within the do category. Yeah, so the do category is very interesting because it's really, it's one of the sections that draws most heavily on the research in the fields of innovation and entrepreneurship. And if I were to summarize it very briefly, it would be, Taking action is one of the best ways to resolve uncertainty. And one of the best ways to take action is to break the thing down into small steps and run a series of experiments. And we see that over and over in the entrepreneurship literature. How do you learn quickly under uncertainty? So for example, if you look at the research on startup accelerators, so a startup accelerator essentially accepts in a class of entrepreneurs for three months and they coach them into hopefully a successful startup. So what are the best practices of the best startup accelerators? Well, let me pose it to you as a puzzle. Let me turn it over to you. How would you make a great startup accelerator? So for example, you know that in the startup accelerator that you want your entrepreneurs to talk to people. So should you force them to talk to as many people as fast as possible up front, like just drink out of the fire hydrant, or should you spread out those interactions with customers, mentors, investors, executives over the space of the three months so they have time to absorb all that information? Oh, and by the way, these startups, some of them might be doing slightly competitive things. So should you allow the startups to keep what they're doing secret, or should you force them to talk to each other and present to each other? Oh, and then finally, these startups are doing different things. And so should you customize the schedule of who they talk to, like to what they're doing? They should only talk to people who are, seem to be relevant to them, or should you make them talk to people who maybe seem irrelevant to them? Hmm, those are some interesting puzzles, right? Well, what does the research suggest? What it suggests, and I'm going to draw the parallel to all everyone who's listening about uncertainty, is it's better, actually to talk to as many people as fast as possible. In fact, the great startup accelerators sometimes make people talk to 100, 200 people in the first month. Why? Because the major trap that they fall into is what we call premature certainty, which is they settle on what they think is the right way to do it too early. And talking to all those folks as fast as possible shakes them out of that, makes them realize, oh, I could make progress, but I kind of need to change it a little bit. Oh, and by the way, it's also good to make those folks who seem competitive talk to each other because it turns out they can share how they solve similar problems. So if you and I were both publishing a book tomorrow, even though we might feel competitive, it's better for us to share information with each other and learn from each other. Oh, and then lastly, even though I might think I should only talk to people who are like me, it's actually incredibly useful to not customize. In other words, talk to everybody because sometimes your most valuable insights come from a place you wouldn't think it would come from. 
And one of the funniest stories was an entrepreneur who was creating this like funding platform really for social initiatives and even like churches. And on his schedule was like the worst thing he could imagine. It was the VP of marketing from Playboy. And he was like, oh, this is like everything I hate. I'm not going to talk to this person. But they forced him to talk to this person. And it turns out it was like one of his best conversations. The VP was like, yeah, I want to get out of here too. I'm actually a churchgoer too. I want to, but here's what you could do and gave him all these ideas. And this entrepreneur walked out saying, this was the best meeting I'd had. And so how do I translate that for you? When you're under uncertainty, it's like you're in a landscape with fog and your task is to blow away that fog. And what we learn from startup accelerators is A, talk to as many people as you can. B, talk to people who you even think are your competitors because they will reveal new ways of doing things and how to solve familiar problems. And number three, talk to people who are actually kind of a little bit different. You may not think have that much to offer because they, they might have something to offer. One of my favorites of this is the woman who was the founder behind Goldie Blocks. This is engineering toys for girls. And, and she was just being nice to this guy at the restaurant who was her waiter and was telling this waiter about engineering toys for girls. I mean, why would this waiter care? And the waiter was like, oh, that's really cool. You know what? My aunt is actually one of the editors at, I think it was like the Atlantic or the New York Times or something. And she would really love this. Let me introduce you to her. So that to me is, again, just as we think about taking action, one of the many tools about learning quickly through the unknown. That's cool. Now, many of these actions that we've talked about are talking to people yeah, and or running small experiments. Can you share with us beyond talking to folks, what are some great actions that help us gather wisdom in a jiffy? Yeah. So maybe I'll go a little bit different direction and share something a little more counterintuitive. So before I do that, I'll say some of the other tools are things like a term we use called bricolage, which is make do with what you have. And one of my favorite interviews was with the uh, gentleman who was responsible for turning around the city of Melbourne in Australia from being one of the most decrepit downtown cores, like really like zombie apocalypse looking to being one of the most livable cities in the world. In fact, voted that way seven years in a row even though he was given no budget and essentially no resources. And so how do you turn around such a dire situation? And one of the things he did is say, well, what do I have a lot of that nobody's valuing? Because we have so much of it. And Melbourne, just because how it was laid out in the gold rush, had all these little, they call them laneways. They're like little alleys that end in a dead end. And um, they, they were for yeah, usually used for parking during the day, trash and social problems at night. And he said, well, we've got so many of these laneways. What if I just put a pylon in there so cars can't go in there and tell the restaurants that are nearby, you can use this space, put up some lights, keep it clean, but you can double the square footage of your, of your restaurant if you keep this space clean. And, you know, he tried it on one laneway first and, and it worked. People ended up staying around at night and the laneway became a place people wanted to be. And by the way, today, Melbourne's laneways are one of its major tourist attractions. But he kept doing that, like making do with very little. And for example, there was a big property collapse and he saw that as an opportunity. He said, great. Now all these buildings downtown, the space I'm trying to revitalize, have no value. So I'm going to go to one of the owners of one of these old Victorian buildings and I'm going to make him a proposition. Your building essentially has no value to you. Let me renovate it into a mixed-use space. So businesses on the bottom, residents up above. Well, the owner of the building had no other 
had no other alternative. And so he said, okay. And, and it worked like people moved into the apartments. He paid it off in half the time he expected. And then he rolled and did that to the next apartment and the next building, the next building at the start of Rob Adams tenure, that's the gentleman who renovated Melbourne, there were 650 occupied apartments in downtown Melbourne, 650. That's it. By the end of his tenure, I think there was over 40,000 occupied apartments in downtown Melbourne. And so the whole principle there was often we say, I don't have the resources I need to get started, but it's really about asking sometimes, what can I do with what I have? Or what do I have so much of that nobody's really, maybe not even I am realizing that it's valuable? If that feels too uh, common sense to you, do we have time for me to tell you about one of the other tools from Do. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So how do you set yourself up so you can't fail? That's an interesting one. Yeah. You're going into uncertainty. You don't know what you're going to face. Can you? Is it possible to set yourself up so you can't fail? Well, um, one of the ideas that was really counterintuitive to me, at least, because I was raised on the dogma of goals, you know, like you set a goal and you go do it. But remember, I told you about David Hanmeyer Hansen. He's a real contrarian. I loved it. He, he was like, listen, if you're doing something new, something doesn't happen because you set a goal. The goal's total bullcrap. Like it, that you don't have, you really don't, under uncertainty, you really don't have control over whether that's going to happen or not. Sure, set a goal. Sure, work hard, all that. But whether the market accepts what you're doing or not is really not in your control directly. So instead, Act upon your values rather than your goals, because that's what you have control over. So for example, for him, his value is, I want to write great software, I want to treat my employees well, and I want to act ethically with the marketplace. And he's very clear. You know, He just launched this big uh, email platform, hey.com. He's like, at the end of that two years, if it failed, if that was a success in the market or not, sure, I do the growth hacking, I do all that stuff. But really, whether the market accepts it or not, is not truly in my control. So if that fails, but I have lived true to my values, then I'll be happy. I wrote great software. I learned tons of stuff. I treated people well, and I was ethical. I feel good about it. Sounds really soft and fluffy, but again, personal experience. So think of me. I'm an academic. I've been working on this for like a decade. Nobody's talking about uncertainty. A pandemic happens. Suddenly, every thought leader in the universe is grounded, has nowhere to go, and all they're talking about is uncertainty. I was freaking out. I'm like, I'm going to get totally scooped here. And my co-author said to me, well, what's your values? Operate on your values because, you know, the world needs lots of perspectives, but go out there, act according to your values, write the very best thing you can possibly write, and that you have control over. You don't have control over if Guru X or Guru Y comes out and says what you already said. And you know what? If... And my co-author said, if you really do that according to your values and what you say will be different and unique and a contribution. And she was absolutely right. And I felt much, much calmer in that uncertainty of somebody's going to beat me to it. That's cool. Thank you. And how about some sustain tools? Yeah, sustain's a good one. It's really important because whether you choose uncertainty or uncertainty happens to you, it is going to make you anxious, nervous. There's nothing wrong with you. That's called being a human being. You're wired to be that way. So you need to sustain yourself when there's a setback. So we talk about a couple important ideas in there. One of them is known as emotional hygiene. So it sounds sort of soft and fluffy, but 
you know, we forget that physical hygiene is a 20th century revolution. If you grew up before the 20th century, you would not know naturally that it made sense when you got a cut, you need to wash it out and keep it clean. And when we figure that stuff out, that you got to do physical hygiene for your body, it increased life expectancy 50%. And I think we're in the midst of a similar revolution where we realize that our emotions are real too, and we have an emotional body. The problem is that when many of us try something new, and then there's a setback, which by the way, was inevitable. There was gonna, it was going to be different than you expected. Then we beat ourselves up. And that's like the worst kind of sustaining. So you've got to sustain yourself. You've got to treat yourself with kindness. And also there's ways you can be rational about it. So I did an interview with uh, Ben Feringa. He won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2016. And he won it for this idea called molecular machines. So if if you've read those sci-fi articles about little robots running around in your blood, curing diseases and things, it would be based on his invention. So I asked him on the way to this breakthrough of this fundamentally new discovery, what, did you face uncertainty? And he like laughed in my face as if that was like the silliest question I could ask. He's like, of course. And I said, so how did you deal with it? And he said, listen, if you deal with uncertainty, you will have setbacks, you will fail. You just have to get good at it. And he said, allow yourself to feel the frustration for a few days and then ask yourself, what can I learn from it? And it turns out that what can I learn from it question is just one in a set of different ways to approach a setback. What can I learn from it is one. Another is to focus on what you still have rather than what you've lost. Maybe my one of my other personal favorites came from a gentleman named Ben Gilmore, who is a paramedic in Australia, but he also writes books and makes films. So that's his full-time job, paramedic. And by the way, has a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you never know when you break down the door what you're going to find on the other side. But I think the story he told me that really inspired me is he, he, he wanted his life to be interesting and adventurous. And he'd always dreamed of riding his motorcycle through the Khyber Pass. And so he saves up his money and he goes out there and he's got his motorcycle. And while he's staying in the hotel, his motorcycle gets impounded. And he's like, what do I do now? And he says, well, I'm going to go on foot. I'm going to go anyway. So he, he's walking on foot through the Khyber Pass and he meets this family. They're residents of the region and they've had this generational business of making weapons. So guns. But the son, he doesn't want to grow up to be a weapons maker. He wants to go to school. He wants to be a poet, but he doesn't have the money to go to school. So Ben Gilmore goes back and he says, I want to make a film about this family. And he goes back and he makes a film about this family called Son of a Lion, which is, by the way, featured in the Cannes Film Festival and, and does generate the funds to allow this son to go to school and follow his dream of being a poet. And, but Ben faced so many obstacles on this journey, including the motorcycle getting impounded. But he went on to make other films. And, you know, he had experiences like he'd be in country with the film crew and the budget would get pulled and everybody flies home except the lead actor. And they rewrote the script and, and filmed that. And that became Australia's entry in, into the Oscars. And I asked Ben, how do you keep going through these obstacles when you face these setbacks? And he said, listen, my father read to me as a boy every night growing up. I love stories. I love the hero. He said, everybody loves the hero, but the only way to become the hero is to go through the obstacles. So that's what I always remember. So anyway, again, just to summarize, 
feeling anxiety, feeling frustration, having setbacks is totally normal. So there's a way you can actually frame them so that you respond differently. Ben Feringa, the guy who wins the Nobel Prize in chemistry, he gets frustrated. He says, what can I learn from it? Ben Gilmore, this kind of wild and interesting character says, hey, the only way to become the hero is to go through the obstacle. So many ways to, to address that and sustain yourself. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you, Nathan. I remember when I was in the early stages of my business and, you know, the times were lean. I remember thinking, hopefully years from now, when I'm rolling in it, I'll look back and say, ah, yes, that was the heroic struggle period. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? Did you make it through? Well, I did make it through. Yes, I yeah. have sufficient revenue to provide for the family. So yeah, mission accomplished. <laughs> and you know what? Yeah. And even when we don't make it through, I mean, listen, like, hey, I try to tell my kids, my kids see me they're like, oh, dad got a PhD at Stanford. Now he's a professor at one of the top five strategy schools and blah, blah, blah. And I tell them, what, are you kidding me? Like I got rejected from every graduate school I applied to at one time. And I tell them about all my failures along the way. And, and I think when you dig into people's stories, what you really discover is that there's actually a lot of uh, failure and setback and, and self-doubt. Mm -hmm. There's an incredible, I mean, we discovered some really moving and interesting stories of self-doubt of people who are very, very successful. And just to normalize that, that, that's part of the journey. Beautiful. Well, Nathan, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I think the one big takeaway I hope people have is that when they face uncertainty, whether it's happened to them or they've chosen it, but something's going a little different than expected, is to ask the question, how could this make me stronger? How could I turn this or flip this so that it can make me stronger? I think that's a question I try to ask myself because again, I get stuck too, friends. I get stuck too. But when I can do that, I actually, we wrote about it. We used this old term from the technology strategy literature called transilience, which is this kind of leaping from one state to another. And that to me is like the image when like boiling water gets set free as steam. And then this moment of like, you're feeling stressed, you're feeling anxious and you say, how do I turn this? And you are able to see the possibility and be transilient, kind of leap to that, that state. That, that would be my hope. I think it's a real powerful question to ask yourself. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? One of my favorite books in the world is by Henry Miller. It's called The Colossus of Marusi. And he says something really strange. He says, magic can never be destroyed. Well, what do you mean magic? I mean, come on, I'm an empiricist. I'm a rationalist. What do you mean magic? But we actually wrote in the book about magic. And it, what we mean by that is those the leaps of insight, those moments of connection, that serendipity that you just can't quite explain. And we saw so many of those as well. And so what I would encourage people to do is to make some room for that. Put yourself in positions where you can have that serendipity. Yeah, you don't know in advance, but if you don't get out there, you don't talk, you don't try, you don't talk to the waiter, you won't have those magical moments, but I, I like that magic can never be destroyed because it's, it's there. We don't understand how everything in the universe works. Things can happen at the, just the right time. Okay. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? 
So one of my favorite studies or, or papers is called Drop Your Tools. It's by a very famous organization theorist called, called Carl Weick. And what he looked at is uh, the Man Gulch fire disaster, which happened in Montana in 1949. So they had established this uh, program where smoke jumpers would jump out of uh, the plane to where a big fire was and put it out. And it was a very successful program and everything was going great when this fire starts in Man Gulch in August. It's really hot. And, you know, when the smoke jumpers land, they're like, oh, we'll put this fire out by 10 a.m. the next morning. They're so calm and sure they like stop and have dinner and the fire's on one side of, of the ridge and they kind of start heading downhill towards the where there's a river in the valley and the river so they have an escape route when the wind kicks up and this fire suddenly becomes really intense it leaps the ridge and blocks their escape exit so the trees by the river are on fire and they start to run back up the hill it's this incredibly 70 degrees slope it's incredibly steep and they're racing and the fire is chasing them 30 foot high flames moving at this incredible speed and the head of the fire crew does something that today we understand, but that time didn't make any sense. He said, drop your tools. Now they'd all been told, don't ever drop your tools. That's your lifeline. He said, drop your tools. And he lights his escape fire. So he lights the grass around them on fire and says, lay down here. Well, nobody, that didn't make sense to them. So they kept running and, and the foreman lies down in the fire, covers himself up in the blanket. Fire just rushes over him and it goes on and it kills the rest of the team. And became this moment, this symbolic moment, because it was this idea that we go around acting as if the world was stable and certain and makes lots of sense, when in reality, it's actually changing all the time. It's very uncertain. It's only these distinctive moments like this fire crisis where we really recognize it. And what Carl Weick recommended coming out of that was that we need in life, and this is true in uncertainty, adapt, to adapt to what he calls an attitude of wisdom. What that means is you have just enough trust in yourself, in the idea, in your instinct that I should do something about this to take a step forward. And you doubt yourself just enough to listen to the voices that signal when it's time to change course. And not every voice is the right voice, but some of them signal that, yeah, you should change course when you hear that chorus enough times. And I think that's a that's a good metaphor for leaders under uncertainty because where leaders get themselves in trouble is they just doggedly pursue a path, try to plan their way to success and execute it rather than what's the attitude of wisdom in getting there. All right. Thank you. And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job. So one of the tools we wrote about is called finite versus infinite games. So James Cars was a modern philosopher at NYU. And in his book, he argued there's really two ways of looking at life. There's the finite view, which is we look at the game of life as the goal is to win. And the rules, the roles, the boundaries are all fixed, but we're trying to win. We're trying to be the best. And infinite players, what do they do instead? They look at instead the joy of playing the game, and they view the roles and rules and boundaries as, as being flexible, or we can play with that. And maybe my favorite example of that is comes from the Tour de France, which is happening right now where I live, and a very famous race between Jacques Antille and Raymond Poulidor. Jacques Antille was the favorite. He'd already won four Tour de France's. Raymond Poulidor was kind of this, they call him the wholehearted son of the soil, and, and he, he, he didn't really win much at all. In fact, he hadn't won any races so far. But there was this moment in this very rough, rugged terrain called the Puy de Dome. 
people described it like the teeth of a saw, you know, just 10 kilometers of up and down. And instead of doing that thing where they like draft behind each other, they raced neck and neck, shoulders like literally like smashed into each other. Neither of them wanting to give an inch to the other one for 10 kilometers. And finally at the end, Pulador, the like, you know, wholehearted son of the soil pulls ahead and he wins that leg, but he loses the race. In fact, he races 14 times and he never wins. But everybody loved Pulador. In fact, no racer was more beloved than Pulador. And people tried to figure it out. They wrote dissertations about it. But I think the best way to summarize it is he was an infinite player. And at the end of his career, he reflected. Somebody had said to him, Raymond, you always had your head in the clouds. You didn't take it seriously enough. And he said, you know, maybe I didn't because I never got up in the morning thinking, how do I win? I always thought, this is so fun that I get to race. I can't wait to race. How do I have fun racing? And so for me, the tool I use is when I approach a situation that's hard, and I have hard things, things I don't want to do, tough things, I say, what's the infinite game I can play here? How could I play a little bit with the goal, with the rules, with the roles, with the boundaries? That makes me curious. Sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't, but I'd say I have a much more interesting career than I might have because I tried to play that infinite game. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, we wanted to make the tools in the book, The Upside of Uncertainty, available to everybody. So we made a website called uncertaintypossibility.com. So remember my thesis, uncertainty and possibility are two sides of the same coin. So you just type that out, .com. And we actually describe all the tools there so that they're available and accessible. Of course, I'd be super grateful if, if people went and bought the book or left a review like on Amazon or something like that, because it is tough as an author getting the word out there. Uh, writing a book is a little bit like a tree falling in a forest for nobody to hear unless people take action. So thank you, though, for asking. Mm -hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, I would say this. There is no doubt that we live in a world of increasing uncertainty. And I think if you can develop that ability early on, you're going to have a huge leg up. And we talked about reframing at the beginning. Reframe any challenge in terms of the possibility. Even when we look at empirical studies of companies facing disruption, the ones that succeed are the ones who Instead of focusing on the loss or the threat, they're the ones who focus on the possibility. All right. Nathan, this has been a treat. Thank you. I wish you much fun and adventure and possibility. Yeah, thank you so much. It was fun. I really loved a combination of two of the things Nathan had to share here. One is that if your life is as certain as possible, you will discover just how boring that is. And I have noticed that myself. And at the same time, there's no need to take reckless risks that would be super destructive, but rather we can split that into six different flavors or segments, intellectual, financial, social, emotional, physical, political. Yeah, maybe some financial risks right now would really not be prudent but if life is feeling a little bit stale or dull or boring, you say, oh, well, maybe there's an opportunity to take some physical risk. Let's do some cool, I don't know, rappelling off a skyscraper <laughs> or skydiving or, or maybe just even running a half marathon or a triathlon. That can shake things up and feel cool and fun because you are, are taking a risk and getting some things going in there. I dig it. Great stuff from Nathan. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP801. Hope to catch you next time in peace. 
Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.